This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. chapter 10, if you would. Keep your Bible open because we're going to be moving to a lot of different passages of Scripture tonight. Again, a little bit different of a type of series than what we're normally used to. Instead of um, concentrating in one passage and kind of tearing that apart and looking at how that fits in with the rest of the Bible, we're looking at a larger, broader topic, and we're seeing what the Bible says as a whole about our salvation. Uh, Messages like tonight ridiculously important for us to understand, uh, for us to find hope and assurance in the Word of God uh, on Tonight we're talking about the the topic of eternal security, uh, the doctrine of eternal security. What that means is once you've received Christ as Savior, you cannot lose your salvation. Man, if nothing brings you hope and assurance, that should. I am Christ's forevermore. I've been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. And God doesn't take returns on what he buys. How about that? Um, I am, will forever be a child of God if my faith and, and repentance is genuine, my salvation is true and authentic. I cannot lose my salvation based on bad behavior. Or um, we'll get a little bit later in our series on, on, on uh, salvation. We'll talk about apostasy. Wow. Uh, big topics that we're unpacking in this. Um, if you were uh, taking notes tonight, you should probably write down the, in your notes maybe somewhere the word soteriology. Uh, that's the study of the doctrine of salvation. That's kind of what we're going through in this particular series here um, on Sunday nights for a little bit. And so next Sunday night, again, you don't, will not want to miss out on this because it's our vision night. Next Sunday morning, I'm revealing the theme to you uh, for our new year, and it's going to be good. I promise you that. And then t- next Sunday night, I'm talking about how that theme impacts our church over the next 12 months, what that means for us. Uh, we're going to take a look at the church calendar, some upcoming events that we have on the church calendar, ways that we have to uh, magnify Christ through our church together. Uh, I'm going to make a big, huge announcement about the, the future of our church next Sunday night. Oh, you got to be here to, to hear it. Um, and so just be here, and I'm going to put some tools in your hands to help you have a better walk with Jesus in 2023. We're going to have things like a, a Bible reading law where we keep track of our Bible reading. I've got some books that I'm going to give to you. If you promise to read books, I'll give those to you, uh, things along those lines. And a couple other things that I have in the hopper to help you to be uh, your best for Jesus in 2023. And so that's next Sunday night. Also following the service next Sunday night, we'll have a, a reception for Jenna Haynes. Uh, Jenna's headed out to West Coast Baptist College. Um, we as a church family want to help people that want to serve Jesus with their lives. And when somebody says, hey, I want to go to a Bible college to train for God to use my life in ministry, we as a church want to get behind that. Uh, no one should support uh, people like that than their own church. And so we we as a church will gather together uh, next week and have a time of prayer for her. We'll probably have some cupcakes and uh, light refreshments uh, following the uh, the service as well. But here's the important part. We're going to take a love offering for Jenna next Sunday night. Everybody should bring something to give. Uh, it's just, again, the amount is not important. The heart saying, we're with you, we're behind you, we support you, we love you, we're praying for you is incredibly important for us as a church family. So uh, be here uh, next Sunday night with that in mind as well. John chapter 10, as we take a look at the topic of eternal security, if you're noticing your notes here, eternal security, week one. Uh, How many weeks are we going to be here? No lie, this was originally supposed to be a one and done message over eternal security. As I began to pack in what the Bible says about it, it got a little bit long, and so I think I'm going to have to make two messages out of it, and I packed in a little bit more, and I got a little bit longer, and then I packed in a little bit more, and it got a little bit longer, and so 
we got three weeks that we're going to talk about eternal security. Which, here's the thing, that's not a bad thing. Uh, you need to be sh- secure and sure in your salvation, and this just helps us to have more security and faith in what God's Word says. Uh, and then after that, we're going to take a look at, get this, I was going to make it as part of this series, but I, I couldn't fit it all in in time, the parable of the prodigal son and what that says about our salvation. Uh, again, there's so many soteriological truths that come from just a parable, a story that Jesus told about a boy that ran away from his family, uh, that there's so much truth that we can ga- gather from that that relates to our salvation. That's a whole message by itself. And so that's kind of where we're going on the roadmap. We'll take a break from this uh, next week for our Vision Night services. We'll get back into it uh, from there. Uh, when we finish up this series here, uh, we'll take a look at either moving on to another doctrinal truth that, that we're going to study uh, as a church family or possibly a book of the Bible. I'm still on the fence on that uh, a little bit, but... Um, John chapter 10 tonight, we're starting verse number 27. Uh, Again, as we go through this, I'm going to encourage you and challenge you to write in your Bible. If you're using a a mobile device, I'd encourage you in whatever app you're using to highlight these verses. You're going to want to come back to them at some point. And if somebody says, well, you know, you know that you can lose your salvation, you're going to have places in your Bible that you have marked uh, that show what the Bible truly says. And so uh, John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29 is one of those passages. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life. Now, stop for just a second, just for the sake of definition. How long is eternal life good for? Eternity, right? It's in the name. Jesus doesn't just give life. He gives eternal life, which is good for eternity, and they shall, get this, never perish, Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And so here we see Jesus, uh, in in my opinion, in my interpretation, I'm going to say my opinion, in my interpretation of what Jesus said, he's saying, I'm giving eternal life to people, and it's good for eternity, and they're placed into my hand And no man can pluck them out of my hand, but they're also in my Father's hand, and no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand as well. And he gives a promise here. They shall never perish. Now this should just really, honestly, I'm not trying to be facetious, this should really just kind of be the end of the discussion. Jesus promised you'll never perish. Your, your eternal life is good for eternity. Nobody can take that, that salvation from you. Any man, no man can take that from you, yourself included. Unfortunately, some people believe that salvation, uh, the gift that's given to you by Jesus Christ, can be lost for poor behavior. Uh, you, you've sinned, you've fallen into sin, uh, and your salvation would then be revoked uh, or they believe that your salvation can be revoked due to apostasy. And again, that's why we're going to talk about this when we get to the, uh, closer to the end of this series on salvation. What happens if somebody says, I'm no longer a Christian. Uh, I re- re- refute my, uh, uh, I recant my, my faith that I put in Jesus Christ. I'm no longer a Christian. What does that mean for someone's salvation? Again, if we're just looking at this verse here, Jesus says, no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand if they're truly saved. You can't even take back what you've already committed to God because God has already purchased you as his purchased possession. Before we jump into this, we need to be really clear on a few things from the very get-go. Authentic faith uh, is found in faith and repentance. That's it. 
We took a look at this last week, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. We believe with our heart, we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe that God's raised him from the dead and that's what saves us. By confessing the Lord Jesus, we're confessing that we have sinned against God and we're making Jesus Christ the master of our life. Uh, that is the idea of repentance and expressing our full faith and repentance in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is what saves us. Uh, Jesus says in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not, and, and gave us his son, and whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So again, faith in Christ is what saves us and gives us eternal life. Now again, if you prayed a one, two, three, repeat after me prayer and didn't mean it, or someone coerced you into a decision, or, or you came forward to the church service and somebody prayed over you, or you raised your hand in your seat and nothing ever happened after that, according to the Bible, you're not truly authentically saved. And if that's you tonight, I would encourage you, be saved tonight. It's, it's really simple and straightforward. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he's the only way to heaven. I'm asking him to save me and forgive me of my sins, and I choose to follow after him. That is salvation. And if you've never done that, you need to do that. Please don't hang your hat on what your mama told you that you did when you were four years old. Please don't hang your hat on the head knowledge of the Bible. Well, I know that the Bible says those things. My son uh, Van, when he was three years old, get this, three years old, still in a car seat, could articulate to you in great detail the gospel. Hey, who has sinned? Everybody's sinned. Who's the only way to heaven? Jesus is the only way to heaven. What do we have to do? We have to put our faith in Jesus and ask for forgiveness of our sins. At three, at three was he able to make his own profession of faith and recognition of the depths of his depravity as a sinner? No way. It took until about maybe nine or 10 years old until he came to that point. So it's more than just a head knowledge. I know facts about the Bible. I know the right answers. I know Bible verses. It's a heart-level conviction that I have broken God's law. I stand in danger of God's wrath and judgment, and I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save me. Now, eternal life is good for how long? It's good for eternity. John chapter 5, verse number 24. I'm going to encourage you to turn over there in your Bible to John chapter uh, 5, verse number 24. You're probably there, and John uh, turned just a couple pages back. John chapter 5, verse number 24. I would put a circle around this, maybe even put a star beside it in your Bible. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. You're hearing the gospel, and you're putting your faith in God. That person has everlasting life. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. So get this. A couple of things we got to unpack from this. First of all, Jesus says it comes back to faith. Not by being a good person or doing good deeds or keeping your nose clean. It comes back to faith in the message that he has, which is the gospel, that he's the only way to heaven. And he that believes what, ha what happens. He has everlasting life. Again, how long is everlasting life good for? It's good for everlasting. It's good for eternity. It doesn't have an expiration date. Jesus doesn't give temporary life. It's only good for a certain period of time. My salvation isn't only as good until I fall into sin, whatever that happens to mean, or when I backslide from the faith. My eternal life is good for eternity. And then it says, shall not come into condemnation. Again, the idea here, condemnation, is God's wrath and judgment upon sin. You and I will not face God's wrath 
for our sin because Jesus has already faced God's wrath on our behalf. You and I will not come into condemnation. Again, you, you just have to read what the Bible says. Jesus says, shall not come into condemnation. Now, we're going to unpack this for the next three weeks, but we just have to take God at his word. If Jesus says that we're not going to fall into condemnation, how can you and I be condemned? If we put our faith and trust in Christ and Jesus says, hey, those who come to me, I'm going to in no wise cast out. Those who come to me will not see condemnation. How can you and I then do something that would cause God's wrath to be upon us and then face condemnation? Again, there's no way that we can do that unless the promise that was given just simply weren't true. Genuine salvation saves us from future punishment. John chapter 3, verse number 16. It's easy. Most of us can quote it unless we're under great duress like I was earlier. And I forgot half the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Most of us know that, but flip back to John chapter 3, verse number 18. Many times people don't know this. John 3, 18, you should circle this. He that believeth on him not is condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten son of God. So if you believe in Jesus, you're not condemned. If you're not believing on Jesus, you're already condemned. John chapter 3, verse number uh, 32. No, not 32. Uh, John 3, um, 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So again, we see God's punishment is promised for those who die without Jesus, And the withholding of God's wrath, judgment, punishment, condemnation takes place for all those who have been saved. So, we come to the realization that genuine salvation cannot be lost. Once saved, we're always saved. Now, in talking with people and trying to help them understand uh, this great promise from the Bible. Now, this again, in my opinion, is, is not really up for debate. Either you believe this or you don't. The Bible's ridiculously clear. Uh, I was talking with a guy one time going through this, and he came from a Pentecostal background, and so they believe that people can be saved multiple times. And so sometimes when you're talking with people, they say, hey, when did you get saved? They'll say, which time? Well, the only time. Uh, Well, when I got saved the first time, this happened, and then the second time I was at camp, and this happened, and the third time when I was in college, this happened, and then I got saved, you know, I I get saved all the time. Uh, You don't understand being born again then. And so we need to talk about that. Uh, We'd gone to a a church one time that we thought we thought was a non-denominational church, then come to find out it was actually a Pentecostal church, uh, because it, it was kind of the, towards the end of the year, it was on, around Christmas time or so, and the the pastor of the church uh, said something like this. He said, "Hey, over the past twelve months, we've seen three thousand people come to faith in Jesus Christ." And like I'm looking around, there's not a lot of people there, uh, and so everybody starts clapping. He says, "Of those three thousand people that accepted Christ as Savior this year, twenty five met him for the first time," and I was just like, "Huh." And so, uh, you know, I'm inquisitive. I want to know what's going on. And so after, it's like, hey, I heard the, the pastor up there. Because the, once the pastor speaks, man, he was out. Like, he couldn't find the guy. Uh, totally gone. And so I asked one of the guys who's standing at the front door, hey, he, he mentioned this. And he says, oh, every week come, people are coming back and finding Jesus again and again and again and again. And I was just like, oh, so those aren't 3,000 separate people. He said, no, it's more 3,000 encounters with God. What? 
Again, could you point me to that passage of Scripture that talks about encounters with God? Because I'm really interested in that. Because Jesus says in John chapter 3, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That's it. He's not born again again and born again again again. And then we got born again again uh, the third time, fourth time, fifth time. And, and we definitely don't count encounters with Jesus as a thing. Now, again, I understand people make mistakes and come back and make repentance with God and things like that. Or people maybe recommit their life to following Jesus because they've been away in sin. I get that. But being saved is kind of a one-time deal. And so this guy I was talking to that comes from a Pentecostal background, and he was like, had 10,000 problems with eternal security. Well, if you're just saying that once I get saved and I'm always saved, then I can just sin as much as I want to and get away with it and still go to heaven. I didn't say that. First of all, you can never get away with sin. Just mark that one down. Ever. Now, will you go to hell because of your sin? No, not if you're a genuine believer. But please understand, you will never get away with sin for sure. Second of all, if you're truly a child of God and desire to, to walk in righteousness and holiness, why would you want to live a lifestyle of sin, which is the way that you lived when you, before you were saved? Third, Paul tells us at the end of the book of Romans, chapter number five, that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. That if we sin a little, God's grace will cover that. If we sin a lot, God's grace will always cover that because you can't outsin the grace of God. And here's what he said. He's like, well, that means you can just sin as much as you want and get away with it. I said, aha, there's an answer for that too. And he's like, I'd love to hear it. Romans chapter six, verse number one. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that God's grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Why in the world would Christians choose to go back to a bondage to sin when you've been set free from that? Paul's like, it just doesn't even make sense. And he's like, well, where'd you get that? And so open up the Bible. <laughs> well, I've never seen that before. It doesn't change the fact that it's still in the Word of God. And so, again, it's not a license to sin. It's a license to serve, the Bible tells us. And so, again, uh, the idea that we can just sin as much as we want and get away with it, and he was telling me, you know, well, he had lost his salvation one time. I said, what, what happened with that? How does one lose their salvation? He said, well, I, I fell into sin. And, and I've used that phrase before, and it's a pet peeve of mine. I, I kick myself when I use it because nobody falls into sin. You choose to disobey God's law because you just want to do what you want to do. So I said, I said, okay, I said, so tell me this. If I fall into sin to lose my salvation, I said, I'm going out with the guys after work, and I, I knock back a couple of beers. Did I lose my salvation? He was like, well, probably not. I said, okay, I get drunk. And he was like, you, okay, you probably didn't lose your salvation. Okay, good. So we get drunk, uh, and then, you know, I uh, maybe spend time with a woman who's not my wife. Would I lose my salvation there? Well, it really depends on the nature of that relationship and things along those lines. So it seems kind of fuzzy, and he's like, well, you know when you cross it. Okay, Imagine, okay, I go out and knock a couple of beers back with the guy, spend some time with a woman who's not my wife, and I, we do a line of coke together. He's like, oh, you totally lost your salvation, totally lost it. Okay, was it the woman, was it the coke, or was it knocking back a few beers that caused me to lose my salvation? And he's like, you're, you're a legalist. I was like, what? You, you're th <laughs> Dude, you're throwing out terms that you don't even understand here, okay? Here's the thing, really clear. If there is a line that you cross that would cause you to spend time for eternity in hell under God's wrath and punishment, if you cross this line, God would be really clear where that line stands. 
And he is, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But for those of us that have been redeemed, if we can fall back into condemnation, how does one do that? It should be really clear in the Bible, but it's not really clear. And so again, if we logically think through this, it doesn't make sense. If we biblically think through this, it doesn't have a leg to stand on at all. And one of the reasons why I get, I get super frustrated with people who attack eternal security is this. An attack on eternal security of the believer is an attack on the greatness of the Father. It denigrates the work of Jesus and takes away from the power of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you're telling me that the gift that God gave me of salvation, redeeming me of my sins, can be snatched away at any moment, that I behave poorly, then God is not as gracious as we say he is. He's not as powerful as he says he is because he can't keep me from falling. Secondly, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross was not enough to save me from my sin. It was enough to get my foot in the door, but I got to do the rest of the work from here on out. Otherwise, I'll lose my salvation. So the death of Christ on the cross isn't as big of a deal as people make it out to be if that's the case. And the sealing of the Holy Spirit, if that's what keeps me until the day of redemption, but it doesn't actually keep me at all, it's of no use whatsoever the way that it's described. So again, the idea that we can lose our salvation is an attack on God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so for me, that's just like, ah, I don't like that at all. Now, would I cross the line to call these people heretics? Probably not, but it's probably as close as you can get to the line without being a heretic. Because again, you're saying that God's not powerful enough, Jesus' work wasn't good enough, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit doesn't really seal you until the day of redemption. And so this attack on eternal security of once saved being always saved uh, is really attack on the Trinity and the power of the Trinity and really the promises of God. Also, we never find anywhere in Scripture of anybody being born again. Again, those people who have indulged in sin are always called to repentance. Always. You take the most carnal church in all of biblical history was the church at Corinth. I mean, they had problems like you cannot fathom. Uh, drunkenness, sexual immorality on every level, division, fighting, uh, griping, complaining, people who hated the current pastor, people who wanted the previous pastor to come back, people taking other Christians to court and suing them and making a mockery of the church publicly amongst unbelievers. I mean, it was bad, 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 bad. But when Paul wrote to them, he used a very interesting term when he addressed them. He called them brethren, saints, believers. He didn't call them heathens. He didn't call them reprobates. He didn't call them to be born again. He called them to repentance. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 8, Paul says about his previous letter that he wrote, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceived that the same epistles made you sorry, but it were for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. And you were sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh to repentance, to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Paul says, I wrote you a letter and you felt bad, and I felt bad for a minute for making you feel bad. But that letter that made you feel bad, it brought you to a place of repentance, didn't bring you to a place of salvation. Didn't bring you to show you your need to be born again a second time. It brought you back to a right relationship with God the Father. 
So again, you take the most carnal church in all of biblical history, and Paul doesn't call them heathens or Gentiles. He calls them brethren, which is a familial term. It's part of the family, which we've been adopted into. So over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about 20 questions that we have to ask ourselves if we really believe that we can lose our salvation. So somebody says, oh, you, you can, you're not once saved, always saved. Okay, then we need to answer these questions from the Bible because the Bible says otherwise. So first of all, how can Jesus lose someone when he says that he won't? If you've got your Bible open, turn over to John chapter 6, verse number 37. John chapter 6, verse number 37, again, these would be good verses to circle. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. So here we see anybody that comes to Jesus will not be pushed away or cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which sent me, that all those which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son, that believeth on him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus says, everybody who comes to me, I'm not going to push away, and every person that the Father gives to me, I will not lose. And come the day of redemption, I'm going to raise that person up. So, again, if Jesus says that he's not going to lose those that come to him in faith and repentance, how could he actually lose them? And again, we have to take Jesus at his word that he says everybody who truly comes to him, he's not going to lose a single solitary one of them. Because we're not kept by the power of our own behavior, we're kept by the power of God. Second question, how can Jesus say those that who come to him will never perish and then allow them to perish. Again, we took a look at this, John chapter 10, verse number 28 through 29. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So Jesus promises that you will never perish. Then how are you going to perish? There's a couple who came to Huikala probably within the first six months of, of uh, us being open. And uh, they come from a, a Pentecostal background. They came here, and, and so I asked them uh, first Sunday that they were here, hey, has there been a time in your life where you've been saved or born again? They said, ha we have, but we've backslidden. Okay, that's fine. Tell me about when you got saved. And so they gave me their salvation testimony, and they had a solid uh, salvation testimony. Uh, and I said, okay. And I said, well, well, based on your faith and trust in Christ, I said, you know, you're, you're saved. And they said, well, we told you that we backslid." What does that mean? And again, this was new to me where uh, the idea of backsliding. The Bible speaks of the word backsliding, but it basically means you're not, clo you're not as close to God today as you were yesterday. Well, the teaching that they had been involved with, backsliding means that you lose your salvation because you had, quote, fallen into sin. And so they said, we've been living a lifestyle of sin for the last two years, and we know that we backslid, and we know that we've lost our salvation. Same question I always have. Who told you that? Because you didn't get that from the study of Scripture, that's for sure. Who told you you lost your salvation? Well, the pastor at our previous church. Okay, got it. 
well, let's take a look at what the Bible has to say. So we went through the Bible, and she was just like, I wonder if the pastor in our old church has ever read these verses before. I, I, I do too, you know? It's kind of there in black and white, right? I mean, if you're never going to perish, you're never going to perish. And Jesus didn't say, those that come to me will never perish um, unless they fall into sin, unless they backslide, unless they uh, don't keep their end of the bargain and things like that. And so, again, very problematic, the idea that Jesus can say something and we can say he didn't really mean that. Next, if we're saved from hell by the blood of Jesus, are we saved from hell by the blood of Jesus? If so, we're saved from wrath through him, not our own good behavior. Romans chapter 5, verse number 9. Romans 5, 8 says that God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Just turn over there if you would. I want us to take a look. Again, context is always critical. Um, we take a look at verses like this. Romans chapter 5, turn over there if you would. Romans chapter 5, we'll start in verse number 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we are saved from wrath through him. So again, a lot to unpack here. First of all, Christ died for us, verse number 8 says, when we were sinners. Not when we had our life together, not when we had everything squared away, not when we were living uh, you know, a righteous life according to the Bible. Jesus died for us when we were sinners. And now we're declared righteous by his blood. And we are saved from God's wrath, punishment, condemnation, hell, through what? Through him. Well, okay. Well, where does my good works factor into this? It doesn't. Well, well, I need to keep up my end of the bargain. Please point out in these verses what your end of the bargain is, apart from faith and trust in Christ. And again, the argument goes, well, well, you can just get saved and then just continue into sin. If that's the case, then I would question the genuineness of your salvation, if that's your choice. Again, people who say, well, I want to pray so I don't go to hell, but I want to continue a lifestyle of sin and rebellion against God, I don't know that you've truly repented of your sin. Not my place to make that call, but your mindset, your decisions, your lifestyle is not a repentant lifestyle. So again, when we look at verses like this, it's really clear that I don't avoid hell because I, I kept my act together. I don't avoid hell because I put my faith and trust in Jesus, and then, and then from then on out, I, I was faithful to church, and I was uh, living a right life, and I was sharing my faith, and I was praying every day and reading the Bible every day, and I was tithing every time I got the opportunity. That doesn't factor into any of this because we're not saved through wrath by the works of the flesh, we're saved from wrath through the blood of Jesus Christ. So then leads to the next question. How can one who has been eternally redeemed by the precious, invaluable blood of Jesus be placed back into a state of condemnation? How can one be condemned when Jesus already promised that you wouldn't? So again, turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse number 1. Notice we're spending a lot of time in John and Romans. 
so much doctrine uh, in these two books of the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse number 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. How much condemnation? None. Now, this is really important, okay? It says there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. When you and I are saved or born again, we're placed in Christ. That's why Jesus says they're in my hand and I'm in my Father's hand and nobody can pluck them out of my hand or my Father's hand. We're automatically in Christ when we're saved. But it also says who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Why? Because someone who is legitimately, authentically born again no longer has a desire to walk in the flesh but they have a desire to walk in the Spirit. And so again, some people confuse this and say, oh, well, you're in Christ and you're saved, but you're not walking in the Spirit, therefore you're, con- you're condemned again. That's not what that verse is saying. It's saying those who have been authentically saved have a desire to walk in the Spirit. We no longer mind the things of the flesh, Paul says, but we now mind the things of the Spirit. That's evidence of authentic salvation. But we're not saved or missing condemnation because of the works of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh. And again, if we're declared righteous and we're no longer condemned, how do we go back to being condemned again? Is there a second condemnation? Again, Romans chapter 5 that we just looked at says that we're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Justified means we're declared righteous. It's It's a legal term. You went to court, the charges were presented, Jesus Christ made a payment on your behalf, and some people errantly say that your case was dismissed. No, it wasn't dismissed, it was paid in full, and then you were declared innocent. So how do you get declared innocent and then be charged again for the same crime again and then be declared guilty? American legal system doesn't even allow that. We call that double jeopardy, right? So how can you and I be declared righteous, but then later be condemned? How long does that take? Again, is it a period of hours, days, months, weeks, years? How long does it take for condemnation to come again? Can a guy who was born again this morning, can he be condemned before he goes to bed tonight? Let me just tell you, that doesn't sound like a lot of hope to me. I think that I'm saved. I hope that I'm saved. I I hope what I did today didn't mess up my salvation. I haven't read my Bible in a week. I hope I'm still saved. That's not peace. That's not hope. That's not assurance. That's not security. Can you imagine a child wondering if he has parents tonight or not? If we're adopted into the family of God and we're truly his child, is God going to kick us out tomorrow for bad behavior? So again, if we misbehave, Do we lose our sonship or are we simply disobedient children? To abandon your children for poor behavior goes against the whole notion of sonship and would make one a reprehensible parent. Imagine driving through a neighborhood, there's a bunch of kids sitting on the sidewalk crying their eyes out. You say, what happened? Mommy and daddy kicked me out because I didn't make my bed. You'd be like, what kind of parents are those? Well, I know, but they told, they told me like four times to make my bed. I don't care. You're, that doesn't make it right. We would look at earthly parents and say, what a terrible parent. Imagine a, a parent going, you forgot to wash the dishes. You're not my kid anymore. We would say that that would be a form of some sort of 
verbal abuse, right? To have God adopt us as his sons and daughters and then at the same time kick us out of the family, renounce our sonship, our daughtership because we didn't perform up to a standard goes against the whole notion of adoption. Take a look at Romans chapter 8, verse number 15. We're already here in Romans uh, 8. Uh, look over to verse 15. If you've not received yet the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself bear witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, we may also be glorified together. So here, God's saying, hey, look, I've adopted you into my family. You can call me father now. Jesus Christ, you're joint heirs together with him. That makes Christ our brother. So God our father, Christ our brother. We're in a family relationship. What do we have to do for God to renounce our adoption? You, you might not know this about adoption. First of all, adoption is an incredible gift that, that parents give to give to a child. It's to say, I choose you and you now belong to me because of my deep-seated love for you. When that child becomes adopted, they get a new birth certificate that lists their birth parents as the adoptive parents are their birth parents. Whoever their parents were before now have no legal right whatsoever because these children belong to their true fathers and mothers in adoption. Beautiful picture. When God adopts us into our, his family, we receive sonship, daughtership. We're adopted. We get a new birth certificate. We get a new name. We are now the sons and daughters of God. Why? Because we believed on the name of Jesus, John chapter 1 tells us. So where's the part where God renounces us? I struggle to find that in the Bible because it's not a biblical concept. Because here's the thing, any child who is within a hair's breadth of losing their sonship or daughtership will continue to live in fear. But this verse here says we don't have a spirit of fear. We have a spirit of adoption. We don't cry to this faceless, nameless deity in the sky. We cry out to Abba, Father. Because we have a family relationship with the Father now who is our Father. And we are his sons, we are his daughters, we are his children because of adoption. Turn over to uh, Galatians chapter 5. Uh, Galatians chapter 4. <laughs> Romans chapter 4, verse number 5. Actually, let's back up. Uh, verse number... Verse number three. Get this. This is beautiful. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Romans chapter, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter four, verse number three. Even so, when we were the children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. You and I were slaves to our sin. We were the children of disobedience and unrighteousness. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son 
made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. The word redeem means to purchase back. We weren't purchased back from Satan. That's an errant uh, theology on soteriology. Uh, we weren't bought back from Satan. Satan did not own our souls. And look, if God needed something from Satan, he'd just take it. But we were redeemed from what? Verse number three says we were the children of bondage to the world. We were slaves to our sin, Romans chapter six uh, tells us. We were in bondage to that and we were redeemed. We were purchased back. What, to be made slaves of God? Not according to this passage. Verse number six says, in your sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you and I have the Holy Spirit proving that we belong to God and we are the children of God and we can cry out to God as Abba, Father. Wherefore, you're no more a servant or a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Jesus hasn't made us slaves to God. He's made us sons of God. We don't have a spirit of bondage. We now have a spirit of freedom through the spirit of adoption. God's not only given us his son, he's given us his spirit, and he's given us his name. So, you're telling me all this work that God goes through to give us all of these things to show his immeasurable love, grace, and mercy. He's just going to jerk the rug out from under you when you make some poor life choices? I don't agree with that. I believe what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, that when you and I step out of line, God, like a loving father, puts us over his knee and gives us something to remember our disobedience by. It's called chastening. I believe God makes our life difficult to the point where we'll no longer desire to walk away from our father, but we'll choose to cleave to him because of his deep-seated love for us. We'll get to this later, but I can't help but bring it up right now. If, if God disowns his children, what's the purpose of chastening? If you and I sin against God and God kicks us out of the family, God wouldn't chasten us because according to Hebrews 12, God doesn't chasten kids that don't belong to him. I don't spank other people's children. I spank my own kids. So if we're kicked out of the family of God, we don't belong to God, why would God chasten us? He wouldn't because we don't belong to him. So the role of chastening would no longer be necessary because the price of disobedience would be disavowment, which goes against the entire nature of who God is. Look, we're like six questions through 20 different questions and 20 different passages of Scripture. And the idea that one can lose their salvation is just a flimsy argument that one might have based on how you and I might reason things out on our own. God wants us to have assurance of our salvation. Again, these things I've written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I don't want to have to wake up one morning trying to figure out, is God still my father or not? Should I get saved again or not? I want to know for sure. My sin is forgiven and heaven is my home. And if I've sinned today or tomorrow, I'm grieved by it because I know that it grieves my father who loves me and gave his son for me and left me his spirit and he left me his word so that I could walk in righteousness and I chose not to. And I am grieved by that because I know that it grieves my father's heart. 
as opposed to, wow, God doesn't love me anymore. God's kicked me to the curb. I've got to find my own way. That just, it flies in the face of the character of God. So again, we're 33% of the way through this idea, and I want you to get this. You can't lose your salvation. But the real question is, are you truly born again? So again, don't hang your hat on what your mom told you. Don't hang your hat on some prayer that you don't remember. You need to hang your hat on the fact that I know for a fact I put my faith and trust in God. I know for a fact I've been saved, I've been born again. I know that I've repented of my sin. I know that Jesus Christ is mine and I am his. I know that I'm a son, I'm a daughter of God, not based on my church membership, not based on my baptism, not based on how good I've behaved this week, but I'm a child of God because he says that I am. That's assurance of your salvation. If you don't have that, please get that before you leave tonight. And for those of us that have been saved and born again, let's not grieve our Father's heart this week. Again, the eternal security is not a license to sin and live however you want to. It's an opportunity to know that I am secure in the hand of Jesus. And I want to live a life this week that gives him the glory that he deserves. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m.